0: Are you sure we should record the episode here, Alex? It's a little noisy.
1: It's exactly because of the noise that I brought us here. Close your eyes. What do you hear?
0: Hmm. Well, I hear the ocean, a dog barking, a few people chatting.
1: All right,
2: I got three corn dogs, just like you asked for, Alex. <laughs> uh,
0: Will bringing us corn dogs. <laughs> Who you
1: calling a corn dog? <laughs> <laughs> We spend so much time exploring the universe using our eyes, but it's important to remember just how much information can be conveyed through sound.
0: Like our entire podcast.
2: Yeah, they don't call us astro-sight-bites for nothing. (laughs)
1: They don't call us that at all.
0: (laughs) Does this mean what I think it is? Is it time to devote an entire episode to sonification?
1: I think that's exactly what it means. But you'll have to be ready with a few sound facts, Will. you ready for
0: that?
2: Oh, bring it on. Did you know (laughs) that the greater wax moth can hear an ultrasound?
0: Hey, save it for the episode. (laughs) How did you have it ready so quickly?
1: (laughs) Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down and talk about something completely different. Sometimes in ways <laughs> you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and their host galaxies.
0: I'm Melina Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planetary system dynamics.
2: And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. And today, you might actually be able to hear my research.
1: Wow, nice. You're listening to episode 33, Scintillating Sounds of Science. Although our introduction may or may not have been a mirage from pre-COVID times, today we're going to be talking about the very real value of sonification in astronomy. We'll also be demonstrating a few sonifications that we've made, announcing our very first Astro Soundbites contest, Woo! and hearing from an astronomer with first-hand experience in sonification research. More on that in a bit. Now, if you don't know what sonification is, welcome to your very first episode of Astro Soundbites! <laughs> <laughs> sonification is the growing practice of representing data using non-speech audio. This dates all the way back to the invention of the Geiger counter in 1908, which most of you are probably familiar with. It's a device that announces the presence of ionizing radiation with a series of audible clicks or cracks. I like the idea of announces radiation. Hello, there's radiation! <laughs> <laughs> now, even though sonification is over 100 years old, it's only in recent years that it's gained steam among the mainstream scientific community. But there are loads of benefits to exploring data using our ears. Will, Melena, what are some of these benefits? I've been thinking a lot about this in the last few days, and I think
2: the benefits of sonification are what I'm going to coin as the three I's. Yes, I've completely made this up. It's (laughs) inclusivity, inspiration, and innovation. The way I see it, inclusivity is enabling people with blindness or visual impairment to participate as scientists. That's really important. Mm -hmm. The next I, inspiration, is... Well, let's go to an example. When LIGO detected the first gravitational wave, they put together that great sound clip with the little pop at the end that everyone just got crazy about. And then there was the ding for the detection with Planck. So Mm -hmm. planetarium shows are great at this. Museums are great at this. This is an outreach effort. We want to inspire the public. And the third eye, innovation, is the pretty amazing
1: thing about sonification. You can use it in ways that you can't use your eyes. So I completely agree with all those points, Will, but I think instead of calling them the three eyes, you should be calling them the three ears. <laughs> <laughs> they, <laughs> ear isn't all letter.
0: <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> all
1: right, well, how about this one? Can the human ear be better for probing data than the human eye can? And in what ways?
2: So this is the premise of the third eye, is that in using sound, you can innovate in ways that you can't with sight. And in a little bit, you'll hear from an interview subject about some of the ways that's possible. One of the examples is you can hear with a higher cadence than you can see, more rapid changes, Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there are certain types of data like transient science where you actually would benefit a lot from using audio rather than using the human eye. And also just in general, in studies that have looked at the way that people learn, if you engage with material in multiple ways, it really helps to instill that information within you and help you to actually more thoroughly understand it and so whether or not you are sighted it really does benefit you to also hear that information and just have a different perspective on what it is that you're learning and to interact with it in a different way
1: yeah great i agree with both of you now i have one last question before we jump into the episode what are some of the sonifications that you've heard that you've really enjoyed
0: hmm one of my favorite sonifications maybe was one that we played several episodes back that was sonifying the discoveries of the first 4,000 exoplanets. And it was sort of mm. like this growing symphony where you could hear the different instruments sort of building up to the Kepler era when we started discovering so many exoplanets. And it was a really great way to engage with that information and to understand what a profound impact Kepler had Oftentimes at every conference, you're always going to see this plot that has just lots of dots on it. And it's like, that's what Kepler did. But I think sort of hearing it as an orchestra really helps to make you realize what an incredible discovery it is, too. Because sound is something that, at least for me, music is something that's really close to my heart. It helps me to more directly relate to the content that's being conveyed.
2: Music is very emotional. I agree completely. There's something to me more powerful about hearing an emotional song than maybe mm-hmm. seeing a painting it it speaks to me on a different level one of my favorites was one of the chandra sonifications that i think i brought last week of an x-ray image of all black holes and the deepest x-ray image ever produced and i really enjoyed that one
1: great examples to both of you and yeah i think you both hit on the point that sound just speaks to us in a way that looking at a plot really does not I think that's something that we're going to be touching on later in the episode as well. But I think that's an awesome primer to get started. And as we ourselves have learned more about sonification, we've gotten the sense that it's a really underutilized tool for engaging others in science and for learning more about our own data. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: We wanted to encourage listeners to explore their data in new ways. So we're actually hosting our first ever Astro Soundbite sonification contest. Woo! <laughs> we're inviting any and all listeners to create a sonification of an astronomy related data set. So it can be one that you're using in your research. It can be one that's publicly available and you can submit your sonification using a form that's available on our website.
1: Contestants should also submit a brief description of their sonification, and either upload a plot of their data or the data itself. It's also really important to properly attribute the data that you're using. We'll judge the submissions based on both how faithful the sonification is to the original dataset, and how well the audio tells a story about that data.
2: Listeners, you will have one mercury year from the airing of this episode to submit your (laughs) sonification. That's 88 days. And brings us to a deadline of July 7th, 2021 at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You should read all of the rules and then submit your sonification at astrosoundbites.com slash sonification dash competition dash 2021. And for the best sonifiers, we have some wonderful prizes! (laughs) Turn your peers green with envy as you rock your green Astra Soundbite sweater with our logo on the front and keep your ears to the cosmos on the back. (laughs) Who wouldn't want that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) They haven't quite hit Dolce & Gabbana yet, so you'll be far ahead of the fashion curve sporting one of these. And you'll also be invited on the show to play your sonification and explain how you made it, if you're the first place winner. (laughs)
1: And second place will win an exclusive Astro Soundbites mug. Exclusive because as far as I know, we're the only one making these things. Perfect for sipping that eighth cup of joe as you listen to Will ramble on about how cool dust is.
2: Ooh, is it time for a dust fact?
0: It's always time for a dust fact. (laughs) All right,
2: I'll try to keep it short, but this one's really cool. So if you're an observational astronomer, you may have heard of zodiacal light, which is a source of light pollution that is really faint but everywhere. And we just thought there's like some dust out in the solar system that causes this. Well, the Juno spacecraft on its way to Jupiter, it's there now, and on its way it was studying this, it got hit with a huge amount of debris, and they realized it was Mars creating a dust trail, throwing off dust, and is the source of all the zodiacal light, or almost all of it we see from Earth. So that annoying light that you just can't dim out, even at the darkest places on Earth, blame Mars.
0: Yeah, I read about this at like 1am mm-hmm. a. a couple weeks ago and I was just totally blown away by it because I can't believe we didn't realize that before. That's so crazy. And it seems like it's such an, a fundamental aspect of observational astronomy. So it's such an interesting finding. It's so cool.
1: And it's crazy because I read my horoscope this morning and it kept saying, blame Mars for your problems. And <laughs> the entire time I didn't believe it. But sure enough, I guess that um, it's Mars.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it's been Mars the whole time. People have been doing Mercury wrong. (laughs) Well, even if you don't make the top two, all submissions will also receive a free Astrosoundbyte sticker for their efforts. And we can only guarantee shipping prizes and stickers to those in the 50 United States and Washington, D.C., We might be able to ship internationally, but it depends on the cost. So um, (laughs) we'll see how many submissions we get. After
1: all, we are three graduate students.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the bank account is limited. (laughs) So again, all details are at astrosoundbytes.com slash sonification dash competition dash 2021. And we're excited to hear what you all come up with.
1: Now, if you're listening and excited about this contest, but not sure how to get started in sonifying your data, fear not. Milena, Will, and I have created some quick sonifications just to get the ball rolling. We've each used a different tool, and we'll explain how we did it to give listeners a sense for what's out there. So let's start with you, Milena. What data did you sonify?
0: So I had a lot of fun with this. I sonified the light curve of Amuamua, which is the first discovered interstellar interloper. And I used data from the Discovery paper by Meech et al. in 2017. So the sound of vacation you're going to hear is specifically associated with figure 3 if you're interested in sort of looking at it and getting a sense for what it is that you're hearing. Hopefully you'll already be able to think about that in your mind when you hear the sound. And it's showing the magnitude of a moa as a function of time. So... As in that figure, I inverted the magnitude so that up corresponds to a brighter object, so a Moamoa is brighter when the pitch is higher, and it's dimmer when the pitch is lower in the sonification. Makes sense. So I'm just going to play that now.
1: That was very cool.
0: You might be able to tell this from the sonification, but Oumuamua has this really bizarre light curve. Mm. You know, oftentimes when you see an object in the solar system, the light that you get from it will be pretty continuous because it's just sort of, you know, planets are round, you see the same amount of light no matter which way the planet is facing. But Amoamoa actually is thought to have a really weird shape, and that's because of this light curve. So the light curve of a momoa arches upwards and then swoops back downwards with a shape sort of like a bunch of different semicircles that are stacked next to each other. Interesting. And this has been interpreted as evidence that a is probably this really elongated object that's tumbling through the solar system. So we see more light when a momoa is oriented face on with a larger surface area for light to be reflected. and we see less light when a momoa is oriented in a different way with a smaller visible surface area. And a lot of the media images of Moa show it as a cigar-like shape for this reason, but actually more detailed forward modeling by Mashenko2019 showed that Moa probably looks more like a pancake. So what we're hearing is a pancake as it's flipping through the solar system.
2: So it's really flat on one axis, but it's about equal on the other two axes?
0: Yeah, that's what it looks like. And the way that you figure this out is actually just coming up with that model flipping it around in your simulation and seeing what it looks like.
2: You make some flapjacks.
0: Yeah, you make, you make some flapjacks, toss them around, see what happens.
1: <laughs> All this conversation's making me hungry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in any case, Oumuamua's highly oblate shape is probably the reason for this strange-sounding light curve where you hear sort of these arches upwards and then it falls back downwards and has a couple of different arches within the light curve that you hear.
1: Amazing. Thanks for bringing that to us, Molina. How many people can say that they've heard an interstellar object, even an interstellar pancake?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm glad that that's the first interstellar object that we found. There was no other way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What sonification tool did you use to create this audio?
0: I created the sonification using an open source Python package called Astronify that is being actively developed by astronomers at the Space Telescope Science Institute.
2: Can you spell it for us?
0: It's A-S-T-R-O-N-I-F-Y, and it's specifically designed for light curves. It's pretty well documented, so the web page tells you all of the different options that you have for tweaking your model. It's also very straightforward to use, so the script that I used to create the sonification was under 20 lines in Python, and all you really need to do is import the package, insert a set of times and associated flexes, so that's your light curve, and the package will create a sonification for you. And you can then tweak a couple of parameters, so you can decide the duration of the notes, the spacing of the notes, the range of pitches, and a couple of other parameters. But it's pretty easy to use. You can just open up an IPython terminal and tweak those parameters until you're happy with how it sounds. And the folks at Astronify are also really friendly and very willing to help. So we've talked to them a little bit about this competition and they've kindly offered to answer and troubleshoot any questions that people have. So feel free to reach out to them. We'll put some of their information in the show notes as well. Definitely recommend this as a really easy to use and great resource for sonification.
1: That is awesome. And thanks to the folks at Astronify in advance for all of the troubleshooting questions we'll be sending them. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Will? What audio did you create for this episode?
2: So I actually sonified my own research, and I haven't had much of a chance to talk about my research in depth on the show. I hope in a future episode to be able to do that, but I'll give a brief overview here. As you all know, I study the atmospheres of planets. What you may not know is I study them using a technique called stellar occultations. A stellar occultation is when an object in the solar system, it blocks, it occults a star for a brief while. So the star is very distant, the object is very close. And so for a period of usually hours, we don't see the star. We see star before, then it goes down to zero, then it comes back. And that creates a light curve. It's different than Milena's light curve. It's different than exoplanet light curves, but it is in itself a light curve. So let's take a listen to that. Normally this part would last about an hour, but we've sped things up a little bit due to the magic of technology.
0: Thank you. So was that was that an occultation of Mars?
2: It was an occultation by Mars. Yes. So that was okay. an event observed in 1977 where Mars occulted a very bright star, a naked eye star. You could have actually watched this event occur. Wow. It was measured by an old telescope aboard an airborne observatory and the data was absolutely incredible, but it couldn't be used in full resolution. So it sat there on Tapes and discs used in very limited ways for the time. But now, today, we could process this in much better full resolution. And I did a reprocessing of this work and I used it to measure the temperature of the Martian atmosphere. So if you listen closely to the light curve, you would have heard at the very end what we call the egress. Sort of a stair-stepping phenomenon. It goes and and that huh. turns out to actually be wave patterns in the atmosphere of Mars. Whoa. So that's you could actually hear the waves. And in the end, when you step through all of the analysis processes of this, I found small-scale waves in the temperature of Mars. And huh. this I, I wrote up into a paper, which just in this past week was accepted for publication in the Astronomical Journal.
0: Wow! Congratulations! Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> That's great to hear. So, okay, so for the majority of that, we heard ingress when the planet started to occult. Then we heard darkness. (laughs) Then we heard egress. Is that right? That's
2: exactly right. And the darkness would be quite a bit longer than we heard.
0: Mm -hmm. And so the fluctuations that we heard during that point of darkness was that just like noise from the instrument or was that actually light from Mars that we were detecting that was slightly deviating but was just very dim?
2: Great question. That that really hits on the heart of why I chose this method of sonifying. The sort of scatter you hear throughout of the different notes up and down the piano, that is noise. It's It's noise from mostly Mars in this case because in an occultation, the planet, as much as you want to learn about it, it's supplying mostly noise. So Mm -hmm. that's why I chose this. And in fact, the real scatter in the data is actually 10 times more than the scatter I included. But when I tried to do that, the piano was an absolute mess and you couldn't hear a
1: thing. (laughs) (laughs) And you said this was sped up. What's the duration of this event if you were to observe it in real time? So the ingress and the egress, that's the beginning
2: and the end of the oscillation are not that far off from how fast it sounded. It's a little slower, but not that much. But the darkness would be about an hour in this case. Mm. Got it. And I just stitch them together. Right. Yeah. And so my current research, now that I've finished this work on Mars, is to do the same sort of work with Uranus and Neptune. Planets that are very hard to explore since we have no spacecraft around them. This is one of the very few ways to measure their temperatures. So I'm hoping to do that uh, in the coming months.
1: Well, you'll have to let us know what they sound like.
0: Yeah, that's so exciting.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I sure will.
0: And what tool did you use to actually make that sonification?
2: I used a Python package called MIDI time, M I D I T I M E, which is actually not designed for astronomy. I think it's designed for earthquakes.
0: Huh. Huh. That's similar.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's like one of the settings where it tells you how many seconds to set equal to a year because earthquakes, Mm -hmm. you know, you're measuring it in years. Mm -hmm. So I had to dial it up so it's 10 to the 7 seconds per year to actually be a year. (laughs) That's pretty good.
0: Cool. So does that also mostly take light curves then? So I guess it would be time series data in the same way that Earthquakes is, right?
2: It is time series data, but the beauty of this is it can take anything. It's very, very Hmm. simple at its core. You specify a note, a pitch on the piano, how long you want that to play for and how hard you want it to play, the the volume. And then it, it just goes and makes it. This package puts it together in a nice clean way to kind of get you started. And there is a GitHub page You can actually import into Python, so it's very user-friendly, and it's a GitHub page that gives you some tips for getting started, but there are a few tweaks you have to make. It's a little more advanced than Astronify. It's not quite as user-friendly for astronomy purposes.
0: That's cool, though. It seems like it has a lot of different functionalities, and it's cool that they have the ability to use a piano and potentially other instruments, I'm guessing.
2: Mm -hmm. You can output it into any instrument you want. Yeah. Very cool.
0: And Alex, you have a sonification too, right?
1: I do, yeah. And it's actually piano as well in the way that it's sonified. So nice. this is the sonification of a set of light curves corresponding to, unsurprisingly, a supernova, <laughs> Supernova 2005 BF. Now, 2005 BF is one of a subset of supernova that I've been really fascinated with recently for my own work. The event was a Type 1 BC supernova. So... Refresher in the grand scheme of supernova classification, type 1 events are those that lack hydrogen in their spectra. 1BC are supernovae that both lack hydrogen and that we believe to be the result of massive stars undergoing core collapse. And 1BC is actually a conglomerate of the categories 1B and 1C. And 2005 BF is classified as a 1BC because at early times it didn't show any helium in its spectrum. So We initially thought it was a 1c, but then at late times, helium appeared from seemingly out of nowhere in its spectrum. So spectroscopically, it had transformed from a 1c to a 1b, and this is very rare. We don't see this often at all. turns out its light curve is also very strange. This is one of a few observed 1bc supernovae that show two distinct peaks. So instead of it getting brighter, rising to a peak, and then dimming, it got brighter, rose to a peak then dimmed, and then got brighter again, rose to a second peak, and then finally it dimmed and disappeared.
0: Does that mean this was a double explosion?
1: So there are lots of theories for exactly what might be causing this double peak. We've seen it in a couple other events. There are lots of theories floating around there. Just one example of something that could cause this double peak is if you have an asymmetric explosion... So part of the material explodes and you see the emission from it at early times, and then later on you see the emission from the other component, which causes a second rise to peak. That's just one example, there are lots of theories, and it could be the case that lots of different phenomena all cause a double peak, but it's really interesting because we didn't used to have the temporal sensitivity to be able to pick up on these peaks at all. So you're going to hear that in this sonification, I've turned the light curve of the event in four bands u g b and v to piano notes very cool there are a few different components so just pay attention for now to whether the audio as a whole is increasing or decreasing in pitch Lovely.
0: And then it descends into darkness forevermore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Never to be observed again.
2: That's right. Alex, why did you choose to have one of the notes on alternating beats?
1: Yeah, great question. I should probably talk a little bit about the tool that I use to sonify this data. Mm-hmm. I've used TwoTone, T-W-O-T-O-N-E, which is a web-based tool created in collaboration with DataVizEd and Google under the Google News Initiative which is a program started to help journalism and news continue to create compelling narratives in a digital format. So it turns out the interface is incredibly easy to use, but to your point, Will, it has more of a basis in music theory than in data. So there are tools to set the scale, the octave range, and the tempo of your audio. And if you increase the tempo, you also have the option to create ascending or descending arpeggios around a note. So instead of going... Da, da, da. it'll go, da da da, 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 It's one of those tricks to just kind of make it sound more artistic. Okay. So the actual alternating notes were not reflective of the data, but were a fill-in-the-gap method to make it sound more artistic as you listen to the sonification.
2: And I could tell that this sonification was in a key. This wasn't chromatic. What
1: key was it in? It was in the key of C, but you can also set that... Okay however you want. You can set a minor scale, you can set a major scale, you can set the key, lots of these things, and you can also set any of the instruments you use. So I've done piano for all of these, but there's mandolin, harp, glockenspiel. (laughs) Very neat.
0: My sonification sounds kind of like baby's first sonification (laughs) by comparison. (laughs) But to be fair, Alex has had experience with this before, and I have not.
1: (laughs) Well, it's something that we should talk about a little later on, is what's the goal of the sonification?
0: Yeah, that's true. Right. Mine was very much like, here is the data, and I will do nothing to make it sound prettier than it is. It is what it is.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that has value.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's there's no artistic license. It is all real data, as dirty as data gets. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I,
2: I took a different approach. There were there were attributes I wanted to bring out in my data at the cost of it sounding less pretty. Mm. Right. And I chose a chromatic scale because I, did, I wanted to have all the gradations. And Mm -hmm. I knew it would sound muddier, but I was going to live with that. But Alex's sounds beautiful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sometimes it's the global features, the large scale temporal changes that you want to capture. And sometimes it's the really small scale perturbations. And Mm -hmm. for those, yeah, maybe it's more important to stay faithful to the uh, data itself. Well, we live in a big world. There's room for three different sonifications, aren't there?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we'll get by. (laughs)
1: As we've mentioned earlier in this episode, sonification is a growing field led by a few visionaries who have seen the value of audio representations of data. We spoke to one of these visionaries about his path and the role of sonification in his work.
3: Hello everyone, my name's Gary For, and I'm a graduate student at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia, where I study uh, astrophysics and the evolution of high redshift galaxies.
1: Gary, you are a graduate student, but you've also had a pretty unconventional path into astronomy. Is that right?
3: Yes, that's right. It's, um, I'm not your typical graduate student. I, I came to astrophysics after a, a career in uh, in synchrotron radiation and X-ray physics. In fact, uh, my first PhD was in was in uh, chemistry, but uh, when I say chemistry, it was more laser spectroscopy and uh, instrumentation. So I've always had a, uh, a love for, a passion, a, a, an interest in instrumentation, photons, optics, that type of thing. And um, my career in, in synchrotron radiation was where I was able to live out that passion and, and had a great job as a beamline support scientist at an X-ray synchrotron source in Japan. And uh, I was one of, a, one of two support scientists who ran the beamline and supported the experimental program on the Australian National Beamline Facility there for, for nearly 20 years. And uh, it was only through uh, the loss of my eyesight that it became basically impossible for me to fulfil the role of, of a beamline support scientist. And, uh, and I was, uh, I guess, forced into retirement from my career position and um, took another job as a desk job working in neutron scattering for a little while, decided that wasn't for me and eventually enrolled in the, uh, the PhD program at Swinburne in astrophysics. That's where I've been for the last several years.
1: Most people get burnt out doing just one PhD. What made you want to go back and do a second?
3: It's <laughs> part of my makeup, I guess, that I uh, I've always been one to challenge myself. Astronomy and astrophysics is something that I always had a very strong lay interest in, and always followed the field from from the outside. In fact, it was probably my first love as a, as an undergraduate, but just wasn't presented with the opportunities at the right times as a young person and. When my life had reached a stage, when circumstances developed such that I was able to take an opportunity and was very, uh, very strongly supported, in fact, by Swinburne and the team there to uh, to embark on the, the program in astrophysics, it was something I grabbed with both hands because I guess there's, I can't imagine anything worse than sitting at home watching Netflix for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and as I say, it's, it's, it's really a dream come true to, to be able to uh, engage actively in a field that I've always had a, an interest in. And, and it's, uh, it's really uh, come full circle. I'm, I'm really probably now where I always wanted to be.
2: What did you notice different about astronomy as you went from an astro outsider to an astro insider?
3: One of the things about the field of uh, certainly observational astronomy and astrophysics that attracted me was how similar it was to the world that I came from in terms of synchrotron radiation, Interesting. Uh, working at uh, at major research facilities consisting of a particle accelerator and multiple experimental stations. So in terms of the, uh, the structure of the facility, the multi-user programs, the application for time, the competitiveness of the, the field, there are a lot of similarities between the way uh, modern astronomy and astrophysics functions from an observational standpoint to where I came from. So at, some, at, at a lot of levels, I felt very comfortable moving into the field. I also chose, by, by design, I guess, to, to stick to what I knew. Astrophysics and astronomy, of course, are huge fields.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, one end of the field barely knows what the other end is doing, in my experience. Mm-hmm. So I, I stuck to what I knew, which was spectroscopy. Uh, I was um, responsible for the X-ray spectroscopy program at the, the beamline facility where I worked. And, and optics and instrumentation. So, so my interest remains. Uh, I came into astrophysics looking for a project that I could at least get my head around in terms of the tools of the trade, and and so spectroscopy is where I came into the field. So, yes, there are certainly big differences, but there are a lot of similarities to where I came from, and that that was something that reassured me early on.
1: Could we get maybe a high-level overview of the focus of your current PhD work?
3: I work in. Um, Star forming galaxies around the epoch of what we call the peak in the star formation rate density of the, the universe. It's those of us who work in uh, high redshift galaxies, tongue in cheek say, you know, we, we work at an, a time when the universe was interesting, because <laughs> it is a time when the universe was going through a, the peak of activity in terms of star formation, a black hole formation, and galaxy evolution was proceeding at a pace quite a degree higher than it, than it is today. So I work around redshift two and three because that's where the Lyman alpha feature that I study most comes into the optical wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's a wavelength where you can still get quite good information. If you try very hard, because these are very, very faint galaxies. If you try very hard, you can still get good information about other properties of the galaxies as well, whether it be their, their kinematics, the way they move, uh, the way the gas moves in the, uh, in the galaxies, their size and shape. And so what my program aims to do is to work on that edge of what's possible to determine correlations between, say, Lyman Alpha observables. Lyman Alpha is, of course, the first excited state to ground state transition of hydrogen. It's the brightest spectral feature in the spectrum of most star-forming galaxies in the early universe and has often been and remains a feature that is studied, A, because it's very strong and visible, and B, because it encodes a lot of information about the galaxies. I use the properties of the Lyman Alpha observables to relate those to the properties of the galaxies in a region where we can actually see what's going on or determine what's going on with the hope of then using those relationships to go to redshifts or across scales in the sky where you don't have access to that other information but all you have is Lyman Alpha. So it's a a stepping stone project that aims to build up a, a framework within which Lyman Alpha can be a general purpose tool to understand what's going on when you have access to little or no other information.
1: You said you look for correlations between Lyman Alpha and other galactic properties. How do you begin looking for those correlations?
3: Lyman Alpha is what we call a resonant line, which means that it's produced in, well, it has a number of sources, The source of most interest to me is the way that it is um, produced in in young O and B type stars. It ends up interacting with the H1 gas, the atomic hydrogen gas in galaxies in a way whereby it is scattered and absorbed, scattered and absorbed, scattered and absorbed many, many times before it actually exits the galaxies and becomes visible. The result of that resonance scattering process or that radiative transfer process is that the Lyman-Alpha that is seen encodes a lot of information about the nature of that gas, the kinematics of that gas, the dust content of the gas, as well as things like the way that gas is moving. So while it's always promised big, it's been very difficult to get Lyman Alpha to deliver because of the complex nature of the process. Hmm. What my project is doing is seeking to distill down to some very basic observables the properties of Lyman Alpha, specifically I measure what's called the net Lyman alpha equivalent width, which is a measure of the shape of the spectral line, both in absorption and emission, or the strength of the spectral feature in absorption and emission. And by pulling that out as a single number, that does, in fact, derive from many physical processes. And then looking at how that number correlates with other determined properties, whether it be colour, whether it be magnitude, whether it be derived properties like uh, stellar mass, gas content, gas fraction. And the most important one in my project is what we call nebular emission line kinematics. That is the way the gas is moving in the galaxies and the way the gas is moving in the galaxies is a proxy for the way the galaxy is moving as a whole. So what we have is early galaxies that depending on the state of their evolution, depending on numerous other properties, They might have gas kinematics that are what we call dispersion dominated, something that you might imagine looks like a a bit like a beehive of of stars moving around in in random directions, but around a a central core of gravitational potential to something that we might call the the thick dusty disk model of of high redshift galaxies, where you've got early disks forming around big clumpy galaxies, but those disks have a distinct signature of rotation. Now, those things can be measured using modern instrumentation, like the integral field unit spectrographs that are that are now, uh, well, I won't say readily available, but are available at you know, the world's best facilities. But measuring those one by one, or, or even with uh, with multi-object spectrographs now, the number of galaxies that can be uh, observed is, is, is small, and usually over a limited part of the sky. Mm-hmm. So... One of the aspects of my project that uh, we actually have the paper now submitted and is under review is, uh, is a project whereby we look at extracting the Lyman alpha properties from broadband photometric information that is cheap and quick and easy to collect over wide scales and see if that can be correlated with the gas phase kinematics of the galaxies, which would mean in an approximate and generalized sense, we can predict the kinematic properties of large populations of galaxies just based on their Lyman alpha or their broadband photometric properties, which would mean that at redshifts where you can't do IFU spectroscopy or over hundreds of megaparsecs or or more distances in the sky, we can have a fair statistical stab at what the nature of these galaxy populations are without actually doing the IFU spectroscopy.
1: Yeah, so just to make sure I have this right, Lyman Alpha is a bright hydrogen transition, has lots of information encoded, which tells you about the properties of that galaxy. And you can observe the properties of Lyman Alpha for high redshift galaxies. And the hope is that you can derive cheaply for a statistical population of high redshift galaxies properties that tell you about how those evolve. That's exactly right. That sounds like an incredibly complicated project and one that would require many hours to tease out correlations. But it also is the case, is it not, that you also spend lots of time doing additional research into sonification?
3: Yes, the sonification project was something that I I came to by accident would would be not totally correct. Obviously, Mm -hmm. when I came into astrophysics, I, I came into the field on a test basis to start with when I first came to Swinburne both sides, both Swinburne and myself, decided that a test period was was appropriate because it really wasn't obvious in the beginning that someone with with my vision loss would physically be able to fulfill the you know the requirements of doing observational astrophysics. Astronomy and astrophysics, as many know and, and many certainly from outside the field, see it as a as a very visual science. And that's to be expected, you know, we're all familiar with the awe-inspiring images of from Hubble and and other observatories of both our galaxy and and the cosmos beyond. As I said, it's not obvious that in a visual science, someone with with my level of vision loss could effectively function. I linked up with um, an online group when I came back to research and, and was engaging with astrophysics. I was put in touch with an online group of people who, it's a fairly interesting group because it's people who are either working in vision research Or people who are vision impaired and doing research. So it's not always obvious what the synergy is between those two groups. Mm. But I was was very lucky to be put into contact via that group with my main collaborator in terms of sonification. His name is Jeff Hannum from the RMIT University in Melbourne. Jeff is a sound architect. His own research is primarily targeted at urban landscapes and the audible component of urban landscapes from a visual impaired perspective. Mm. And we, we just got chatting and he could see immediately the closeness of mapping out a multidimensional urban space with sound and the idea of a multidimensional data space in astrophysics. So while we came from very different directions, there was a connection there that uh, we both saw and he could see how it provided a new field for him to expand into and it started out basically with me looking to work with Jeff on how it might make what i'm doing a little easier by the sonification of uh, for example spectral information or multidimensional data sets and it's branched out from there so that's that's how i came to sonification while it wasn't an initial part of my phd program it has been something that i've spent a lot of time on and yes will certainly feature in the end product
1: so this is presumably how the project star sound began
3: that's right, Jeff is the software engineer, as I said, and sound architect. He's the real brains behind the operation. I'm perhaps a technical advisor and end user, chief tester and uh, mm-hmm. and I guess I, I'm the one who comes up with wouldn't it be great if we could do X,YZ? Mm-hmm. And he's the one who goes away and implements that and then we work on it together to, to make that happen. So yes, Jeff is the uh, the author of Star Sound and, and the new the new version or, or, or a separate, utility now, which we also have called Vox Magellan, which has another range of features for sonification of data.
0: Could you tell us more about these projects and what their primary goal is?
3: The prime motivation was to to help me using sound to access things like spectral information. Being a spectroscopist, I had a mental picture, of course, of what I was expecting to, you know, what a spectrum would look like. And I could read about them in the literature and, and the shape of absorption and emission lines and 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 whatever. But of course, not being able to see the spectrum, it was always just left to my imagination to some extent. And so the the principal motivation where we started was, was with spectral data. So looking at the rest frame UV spectra of these high redshift galaxies and using sound to trace the spectrum, to find features in the spectrum, to quantify their size and position, to characterize the nature of the spectrum and therefore the nature of the galaxies based on what I could hear. So that's where that started with. And that was where that was the start of star sound.
1: Real quickly. I have to ask when you heard a sonification of a spectrum for the first time, was it anything like you had been imagining or completely different?
3: It was different when I heard the, the sonified spectrum for the first time, I thought, Oh, that's what they've been talking about. <laughs> so it really was, and no pun intended, an eye-opener because for anyone who's familiar with the rest frame UV spectrum of early star-forming galaxies, it's very complex. It's it's information-rich. Mm-hmm. Um, it has what we call the Lyman continuum break. Uh, it has the Lyman-alpha forest, which is a, a region of the spectrum that encodes the gas in the uh, the intergalactic medium, as the light passes from the galaxy to us, mm-hmm. it contains the Lyman alpha feature itself, as I said, in absorption and emission. And then in the continuum, there also in, in, in good quality spectra, there are, there are absorption lines and, and, and the shape of that continuum is even information rich. So to be able to read about those concepts when I came to the field and tried to start to understand the spectroscopy was one thing. But to actually hear the shape of the spectrum, to hear the Lyman break, to hear the Lyman alpha forest, to hear a, a Lyman alpha feature in absorption and emission, it all fell into place. So it was it was very exciting to, to have that first experience. As I said, I was supported in, in my desire to, to work in the field by, by Swinburne and particularly by my PhD advisor, Jeff Cookie, who uh, right from the very start was very pragmatic and very... Uh, as I said, very supportive in the sense that, well, if there's anything you physically can't do, we'll find a way around it. He was never, he never saw my, my visual impairment as an obstacle. It was just a, uh, it was just another one of those research challenges that someone might face and has to find a way around.
1: We've talked a lot in the show in the past about supportive advisors and how much of a difference that can make in a graduate experience.
0: Yeah. It's great to hear that you have one.
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't be where I am now. I'm I'm hopeful, hoping to submit my thesis towards the middle of the year. And I would never have come this far without without Jeff and, and his support. You know, having having lived through the PhD experience once before,
0: it, it might have
3: faded into distant memory a bit. I'd forgotten how hard it was going to be. But having lived through it once before, I, I did have a sense of the challenge that was ahead of me. But I certainly couldn't have, have done it without the support of, of Jeff and others who I've worked with on the project. So certainly to any aspiring undergraduate or, or graduate student, uh, I think choice of, of advisor is is very important. Jeff Cookie, my, my advisor, he is a visionary. Jeff is a big picture sort of, sort of guy, and he has, he has fingers in lots of different pies. But one of the biggest projects that Jeff has been running for the last several years is what uh, is known as the deeper, wider, faster program, which is a program of um, of real time observation and detection of transients. The scope of the program is huge. It involves something like sixty to eighty observatories all around the world, some in simultaneous real time observation mode. The the rapid reduction of data, passing using um, various techniques to identify targets, and then then um, The allocation of space and other assets to follow up. So it's a huge program in an area that's that's very active around the world. In fact, transient science has become very big in recent years. Um, But Jeff immediately could see the potential for sonification in the DWF program because of the speed at which it was required to work with real-time observations and target identification because of the volume of data that was being collected and because of some of the advantages of sonification. So the star sound project has expanded far beyond my niche need to work with spectral information. And it's now growing into uh, something that ultimately will have application, hopefully, in the DWF and and other projects. The application of sound in DWF is something that that Jeff Hannum and Jeff Cookie continue to work on with, with other students. And they're looking at applications using you know, augmented reality and, and real-time conversion of light curves into sound for uh, characterization and target identification, as I mentioned. So it's not limited to, to me alone by any means, and in fact has grown into a much bigger beast than, than what uh, we first envisaged. There, there, are, there are some dot points that I usually speak to when I talk about sonification, and I'll I'll mention them now briefly, but Some of the challenges in in modern astronomy and astrophysics, certainly observational work, relate to ever increasing volumes of data. We think of observatories like the LSST and and the Square Kilometre Array that will be generating volumes of data at at rates that are almost unmanageable with current technology. And, And in fact, the ability to deal with those data streams has been a big part of those projects. The advancement of time domain astronomy, as I spoke to, has been something big in recent years, and Jeff's DWF project is one of, of several that look at searching for. Well, they can range over time, but they can be as short as as a, as a fast radio burst in the in the millisecond type time scale, through to uh, you know supernova events that evolve over years. So there's there's a big time range there, but the transient science and transient astronomy is is, is a growth area. There's also the the what it's something that's probably never changed in in observational astronomy and astrophysics and that's the fact that we always tend to work at the bleeding edge of what's possible in terms of signal to noise pulling little bits of information out of noisy spectra or, or noisy data streams just seems to be where you're always operating it seems that the good the good stuff's always hard to get hmm. so faced with those challenges there are aspects of sound that lend it to application to help address some of those problems. We're, we've evolved to be a very visual animal. About 80 percent of our information input comes through our eyes. So it's natural that that's that's our default. But we have evolved with other senses for a reason. and audition or, or our auditory sense is one that has particular advantages over vision that if smartly employed, can offer a great complement to the visual input that, that we're so used to using. One of the well-known aspects of of sound and auditory perception that some of the listeners may have heard of is the so-called cocktail party effect, which is the ability of our our auditory system to pick out a sound or a known sound in particular from a very noisy background. Your brain can filter that out and pick it up at levels far below what would normally be audible to your ear. And the cocktail party effect applied to very noisy data streams has already been something that's been demonstrated to work in an astrophysical context. Wanda diaz merced who was one of the pioneers in the sonification of in astrophysics, Wanda worked with very noisy streams of data and showed how it was possible to use sound with a degree of, of filtering and, and, and Fourier transform confirmation, etc. But it was able to pick out things from a uh, a data stream using sound that were just totally uh, undetectable otherwise. So the the cocktail party effect is one where there's already been a demonstrated proof of concept. The other advantages of, of audition extend to things like our ears have much better temporal resolution than our eyes. That is, we can hear two sounds with a very short distance of time between them, much better than we can do with our eyes. So, so your ears can detect two different sounds as little as, it's down in the microseconds time range, I believe. I could be wrong on that, but it's a very, very short amount of time that your ears can detect two different sounds. And of course, our neuro auditory systems have also evolved so that we respond much faster to sound than we do to sight. And this is something that's also been known and applied in some industries in a military context. Things like warning alerts in aircraft and in military systems have long been auditory because it's been proven that the human body will react faster to an auditory alert than to a visual alert. So there are aspects of auditory perception that are different slash superior to visualisation. And if smartly applied, can therefore... um, complementary to the visual effect rather than just, you know, being a neat trick or something that, that doesn't really add too much more. It's also good to point out that sonification, it has a range of applications and you'll find it applied from a very basic educational and outreach level mm-hmm. um, where the sonification is designed to be attractive, to, to bring people to the field, to show a new side of the field. There, there's a group in Australia working with sonification, you know, developing sonified games for visually impaired children. So even from that, that level, to be able to interact with, uh, with STEM and science and maths from a very early age, of course, right through primary and you know, K to 12. And, and education and outreach is a very important aspect of the application of sound. Um, and to lay audiences, of course. I recently worked with Kim Aken at uh, at Chandra she is part of the NASA project. Uh, you might have seen their recent sonifications. I think they're online now. Uh, they did some really wonderful sonifications, some observations, combining data from Hubble and, and Chandra and, and optical wavelengths, some really beautiful sonifications of some uh, some astrophysical objects. You know that, that has a tremendous place in um, showing the wonder of astronomy and astrophysics, I guess, and expanding that. The direction that I come from is more from a research point of view. My sonifications are probably less dramatic, Mm -hmm. certainly less Mm awe-inspiring, and certainly less musical. Mm -hmm. But because my goal is to extract uh, research-level information from a data stream uh, using sound, my my approach and my tools are a bit different. So while sonification is a good umbrella term, it's important to remember that it has uh, applications and implementations that vary from as I said, education and outreach outreach right through um, age groups and right up to research level type applications. So there's something there for everyone, in fact, and it's and it's a wide field all on its own.
0: Thanks so much for that interview, Gary. It was great to meet you. This was an awesome discussion. It was so fascinating to learn all of this.
1: And now it's time to move on to our discussion. Are there data sets that you can imagine sonification being really good at? It seemed like all of the sonifications we did were of time series data. Does that have to be the case?
2: Hmm. Time series is nice because it's 1D. Mm -hmm. An image, a true 2D image is going to be tough. Especially, well, you know, I I don't know if this is going to make a whole lot of sense, but you do have more variables than you think. If you are willing to use different pitches, different instruments and different volumes you can get over a course of time three different dimensions to explore in sound. Mm-hmm. How easy is it to display three different dimensions on a plot? A 3D plot is almost the worst kind of plot to look at. It's great if you can collapse it down to 2D. So, and this is going to be hard because it could be tough to pick out all the details, but I could imagine that you could do some incredible sonifications with complex data. So maybe everything is sonification.
0: <laughs> yeah, I want to say that we have had some images that have been sonified in previous space sounds on past episodes but with that said you probably have to be more careful about how you pre-process to make sure that you're not just getting a huge amount of noise in Mm. because i think the way that those sonifications did it was they swept across the image and that means you have a lot of pixels that are being sonified at the same time so if you have just a lot of darkness of space and then a couple of interesting objects you'd need to think about how to treat those differently so that The real interesting objects aren't just drowned out by all the noise of background space.
1: Right. I think a lot of times the temporal dimension in your data set corresponds to the temporal dimension of the sound representation of your data set. So you play it as a function of time, which maybe makes sense, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. And can maybe imagine a... A three-dimensional space maybe a room where you could walk around your data set and hear how it changes as you change your position in the room and again that position could be corresponding to physical space in some two or three d image or it could correspond to time you could walk in one dimension and you're walking through the evolution of a star or something like that and that could all be done in sound and i imagine it'd be a lot harder to do that visually
2: Alex, this is like virtual reality, but for sound, how cool would that be to be in like a museum room with a headset on and you get to walk through a globular cluster (laughs) and you can like stop and hear each star and get to the cluster center and walk out. That's so cool. I, I'm amazed by that idea. I'm not sure if it's
1: possible to create it yet, but amazing. So actually there's a sonification that I had done in 2017 for an astronomy outreach exhibit and for that We had an ultrasound sensor tracking a person's position in the room and you could walk through a star and the sound corresponding to the chemical composition of the star changed as you moved through that space. You actually did (laughs) this? I was thinking this is like some
2: future world
1: and you did it already. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Gary also mentioned both of the Jeffs doing now tons of new work in virtual reality corresponding to sonification of data. So it seems like virtual Mm -hmm. reality is really a space to push into for new frontiers, new ways to explore your data through sound. Wow. Maybe a specific question. Was sonifying your data easier or harder than you expected?
0: I think for me it was really straightforward. And I think I could have made it a lot more complicated. And I didn't because I wanted to hear the noise as well Hmm. as the signal. Like I was really trying to understand what does this light curve with all the messiness that comes with light curves sound like without making it a flute sonata or something. (laughs) But I think if I did try to do that and maybe one of you can speak to this, it might have taken a little bit more energy.
1: I feel like you're subtly uh, attacking my sonification as being a piano <laughs> sonata.
0: And, I am uh, not. That is not an <laughs> attack. That is a compliment.
2: <laughs> well, I I think I'm the kind of person that makes everything harder than it needs to be. And so I spent a lot of hours trying to get it to exactly what I wanted it to sound like. Mm. I actually ended up making about 20 sonifications <laughs> and, and picking wow. the one I liked the most. Yeah. Um, also, I picked an application that is not out-of-the-box, user-friendly. You can't just like dump a data and hit go. It requires some tuning and some geology adaptations. So <laughs> I I had to play around till I got the settings where I wanted them to. So in, in that sense, it was maybe a little harder than I expected, but it wasn't that hard.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair where, it, especially if you use a tool that wasn't specifically designed for astronomy data sets, you might end up having to put in More time, and it might have different functionalities, because the niche of people doing Mm -hmm. astronomy sonifications is not that large yet, but people in general who sonify anything, you know, there are lots of sonification tools out there, but yeah, it might take a little bit of extra tweaking if it's not designed for astronomy data.
1: Well, this is why I thought it was so interesting, Milena, that you had said that it only took 20 lines of code to render your sonification, because... I didn't write a single line of code. Two-tone was fully GUI based and I clicked through a bunch of buttons and then I had my sonification out the other end. So yeah, it's really interesting. It seems like people approach sonification in loads of different ways, which can translate to ease or difficulty of use. And all of that is based on, again, what you're trying to accomplish with your data maybe translates to what tool you think is optimal for that purpose.
0: So, Alex, does that mean that if someone doesn't know how to use Python, then the GUI that you use might be a good option?
1: Correct. You don't need to do any coding.
0: That's great.
1: Sweet. Melana, you kind of alluded to this earlier that there are loads of people doing sonification outside of astronomy, but inside of astronomy, maybe not so much yet. So my question is will sonification ever reach a critical mass where it's used by the majority of astronomers for lots of different use cases, or will it remain kind of a niche field for exploring specific data sets?
0: I think this probably depends on if we're able to get sonification to a place where it's clearly much more efficient than visual methods of understanding data for specific applications. And so... If that is true, then I could certainly see that astronomers would turn to the more efficient tool. I think sort of the hindering force there is that so many people who work in astronomy are so used to understanding the universe with their eyes just in general, and we use our eyes for so much of the processing that we do if our eyes are something that is available to us for that. And so because of that, oftentimes even if audio information is better at portraying information. It's just not something that people are as comfortable with. So I think you would really need to show very clearly why it's better and in what use cases it's better in order to show people that, you know, it's it's really something that dedicating time to will help them in the long run such that it'll actually save time and help them to understand their data set better.
2: I don't know that I can offer a better answer than that. I think that really sums it up. I will say that we are at an inflection point as the way I see it in this country in inclusivity. There is not going to be an activity, especially in science, that is not going to be geared toward inclusivity going forward. So is this something that more people are going to become aware of? Yes. And more people are going to use and enable people to use? Absolutely. Will advisors take on grad students who have a visual impairment and show them the tools that they can use to participate as well? Yes, will it be part of museum exhibitions and planetarium shows and outreach? Yes, all of that. Will it really be at the forefront of the latest research? Probably not. Unless Melania you're right, it can be proven to be more useful in specific use cases. And then it will be. But I don't think it's likely that that will happen enough for everybody to use it. But it's going to stick around and it's going to keep growing, for sure.:
0: Just imagine a world where every paper that you read, every figure you could click on it and hear a sonification. Wouldn't that be so cool?
1: Sure would. That would be amazing.
2: Maybe we will get there.
0: Maybe we will. We're getting more tech savvy. Maybe as we get more accustomed to different types of technology, it might not actually seem like much of a barrier in the future.
2: You can imagine a machine learning algorithm that figures out the best sonification for each figure, turns it into something, and then the user can sort of manipulate that. And I mean, you could manipulate the figure too, right? Why not? Make it all interactive
1: and set the settings as the user would like. Yeah. And I think with all inclusivity efforts, it would just become a question of who's putting forward that money, that effort to make these things commonplace. Yeah, right. If, If I'm a postdoc and I'm thinking about how best to orient the limited amount of time that I have before I move into applying to professorships, I have the option between developing sonification tools and submitting one more paper. And I see that a certain number of papers is going to help me get that postdoc fellowship. It's a hard sell to say that I should be working on the sonification tools unless these programs, these departments specifically incentivize inclusivity efforts. That's why I think a lot of people should be rewarded and incentivized for their efforts, because that'll really help it become commonplace and give people more motivation to help it become a more inclusive field. Yeah, absolutely agree. So I think that'll wrap up our episode. But right before we end, here's Gary with the one sentence summary for the day.
3: I came to astronomy from the point of view of a person with with a visual impairment who was trying to get more out of my research. What I've discovered as I've worked in the field of sonification is not only tremendous application for opening up the field of astrophysics to someone who has a visual impairment, improving the accessibility, but recognising also the fact that tools that improve the accessibility for someone like me can actually make the field richer for everybody. And there are applications of sonification that can be well applied in the mainstream to improve data management, data interpretation, and the way in which we interact with data in an ever-evolving field.
1: That concludes episode 33, Scintillating Sounds of Science. The tools we talked about today are linked in the show notes, along with a link with more information about our sonification contest. If you liked the show today, tell your friends about Astro Soundbites. You can find us at astrosoundbites.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. To play us out, here's Gary and the Star Sound team's sonification of the spectrum from a star-forming galaxy. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.